Hello, can you all hear me okay? It's good? All right. Well, thank you so much. We are the closing panel, and I know it's been a long day, so I'm very excited to uh, moderate this panel on the value of open source software uh, for federal programs. And I'm just not gonna keep this simple and brief in terms of having everyone uh, give a little introduction. Uh, my name is Sophia Bilou. I work at the US Geological Survey as an innovation specialist. Mostly I work on open science or what I like to call participatory open science innovation. Uh, that includes crowdsourcing, citizen science, prize competitions, and I'd like to include that with um, open source because I think it's a really important area and very excited to have our experts here. So I'll just um, start along the line with Amanda. Uh, hello, my name is Amanda Bright. I'm a lead artificial intelligence data scientist, to get all the buzzwords there, into one title. Um, I have been with NGA for six years. I specialize in developing workflows using automation to help increase efficiencies and help, help our mapping missions specifically. Hello, um, I'm Chris Rasmussen. Uh, I'm the creator and founder of the uh, Terline program. You can actually look at this on your phone right now. Uh, it's an effort to create public-facing open-source intelligence. It's built from an open-source software stack. Um, you can go to terline.mil and check out the content. We have apps in both the Apple Store and Google Play. So that's the, and I've been in the open-source intelligence space for about 20 years. That's my specialty. Um, on the open source software side, uh, I helped uh, NGA uh, launch its organizational brand account in GitHub in about 2013 uh, and helped all of the processes from security, intellectual property, end to end to get those repositories to there. Uh, and I also, I've stayed in the open source software advisory space. I'll talk to you a little bit more later about the, the, the improvements that we've made uh, on the open source software side, uh, but that's my, that's my background. Hello everyone, my name is Justin Rice. I work at NASA Goddard. I am the deputy manager of the ESDIS Science Systems Development Office. Um, the ESDIS Project Office, ESDIS stands for the Earth Science Data and Information System Project Office. We manage 12 um, ground systems. We ingest, archive, distribute, process Earth Science data. Um, and we're one of the, the largest repositories of Earth Science data in the world. Um, right now we are in a massive push to get a lot of things transitioned over to the cloud. There's a lot of open software development um, across our many organizations and I'll be happy to talk about that a bit more later. Thanks for having me. Cool, uh, my name is Rory. Uh, I work at the US Agency for International Development or USAID or USAID, you'll hear both. Uh, I'm a GIS analyst there and the activity manager for the Youth Mappers program and a uh, open source evangelist. Thank you all. Um, so one of the first questions I want to ask uh, you first too, I know you both are at NGA, but what are the main objectives uh, with open source software? Is it to build community? Are there, what is the real value and benefits that you have seen based on your activities? Go ahead, Amanda. Uh, so one of the main benefits that I've definitely gotten is, you know, the community across NGA. We have a lot of missions and a lot of data scientists that are doing very different things. And one common language that we have is open source. Uh, I specifically, and many are like me, that I grew up learning data science through open source softwares and technologies. We've all tried different things to solve different problems. And so bringing everybody together is, um, it definitely brings a lot of camaraderie and a lot of problem solving and creativity. 
So back to the, the founding of the, the, the GitHub um, brand account is the transparency is the key as far as the version control of something that's actually real and tangible. Uh, and particularly coming from an intelligence organization, doing that and doing it publicly, open source with a capital O, not internal small o open source, but the, the, the big major licenses, doing it in public and doing it on the biggest stage possible, that helps with you know setting, I, I don't like this word, requirements. You can actually see what's going on in a fundamentally very clear way rather than kind of esoteric business lit, you know, literature language and request for proposal type of language. You can see it in a very practical way. The other side of it as an intelligence organization is it helps kind of de-spookify intelligence. Is, is if you look at the open sourceization on the open source intelligence side of the commercialization of space, intelligence officers, patent researchers, Capital One researchers and people that generate content, that kind of knowledge worker does very similar things. And we all kind of need the same type of business functions. So it, the open source software stuff for me really helped with helping the organization kick into a much more commercialized gear and get out of kind of the secret squirrel world. So it, it served a coding purpose, but it was also on the transparency part yeah, we all need to be here as knowledge workers and this is just common sense type of stuff that we need like Capital One needs. Or a lot, you know, just core, simple, vanilla stuff. And that was really, really helpful. Lovely. Do any of you like to also provide some ideas of what's, what are the benefits of open source software? I, I will take a step back and say, for us, it's more so building that community because out of the community emerges sharing, right? Sometimes we wanna to skip to sharing first, but if you don't have a community or people don't really know anything about it, it's useless. You can go to Google Play or Apple Store and see tons of free software. Who's using it and why, right? So a lot of times we, we, we get the people in the room, the players, the, the, the technical people, the, the software developers, the, the researchers, the managers, all in the room to develop that community, to develop that trust, to understand the use cases, to understand the business practices. We get everybody in the room and we build community. And part of building community is sometimes breaking down cultural barriers, mm -hmm. right? The not built here mentality, right? We don't really know what it is. We know our people, we trust our people, we trust our developers. We know our systems and we know our needs, so we trust what we do better than we trust what the enterprise is doing, right? So getting all those people in the room and really working to break down those cultural barriers in a way that builds a larger community to, to share lessons learned, to share um, the different problems that we're dealing with. And then once you do that and you build trust, then you will see open source kind of take off. You don't have to really force it. It kind of just emerges as that, that uh, as, uh, as organically, I, I don't like those words, organically, it, it emerges organically as a result of building that community brick by brick and not like putting something on, like think of you trying to be a, a, a content provider on, on YouTube and just putting a video up on YouTube. Will it go viral? And these days, it's not likely, right? So you really have to work to build your community brick by brick. And then out of that emerges things like 
adoption of open source software and things like that. And Rory, I know you use a lot of open source software with the youth mapper, so I'm not sure if you had any points that you Yeah, just um, riffing off what Justin was talking about, um, I kind of feel like working with open source is kind of like doing a company offsite, but way more fun. Uh, instead of doing trust falls and uh, you know uh, icebreakers and stuff, um, you're working together with this common purpose, and you're bringing you know not just people in tech uh, who are doing the coding, the programmers together, but project managers um, and, and users um, all together. And at USAID, we work with a wide swath of partners. Um, we have implementing partners who are actually working on the projects that we design and run. Um, we have the beneficiaries, the people who are benefiting from the projects we're running. And uh, through open source as kind of a tool, not just to develop software, but to bring these people to that table in an organic way, like Justin was talking about, is really helpful. Yeah, thank you for that. I remember when we were talking, uh, you made some good points about uh, access, especially in the developing communities. That, that's why sometimes it's really valuable to use that kind of software. Um, so what I also want to ask, uh, maybe start with you, Justin, is what strategies do you employ to encourage internal and external teams? to use and contribute to open source software? Okay, so we, like I mentioned before, we are uh, an organization of about 600 people spread geographically across the United States. We have 12 data centers, if you will. And historically, those data centers have their own culture, they have their own mission, they, they didn't really work together as much. But now as we're moving to the cloud, all the data will be in one place, why? aren't we working together? So we had to work with each one of the data centers to kind of break down cultural barriers. And we did this by uh, taking developers from each one of the centers, if you will, and having them work together on the same team at the enterprise level. So I'm at ESDIS at the enterprise. We manage 12 different data centers. Each one of those data centers historically has their own mission, their own objectives, their own user community, their own developers. And we're saying now, now that we're moving to the cloud, we're gonna take some of your developers from your, from your center and we're gonna work together virtually helping create these virtual teams such that you all learn how to work together on hard problems. Because let's be, let's be honest, the easy problems have already been solved. So um, what we're beginning to see now that we have these cross-organizational teams is that it's, it's slowly breaking down those barriers, right? It's like the not built here mentality is slowly eroding. And we begin to see people um, from different data centers volunteer more and more developers. How can we work together more? How can we bring in external uh, organizations, right? Um, one of the reasons why I'm here today is to help build community, to learn more about what's being done and to partner with other organizations, right? We don't want to do this in a vacuum. We don't want to keep rebuilding the same tools. We want to be able to solve those harder problems. And in order to do that, it takes all of us. It literally takes all of us to solve these problems at the scale we're trying to solve them these days. And so getting back to the question, it's really working to understand that there are cultural barriers, there are uh, management barriers, there are policy barriers, and working to like uh, kind of tear down these things constructively to let the people, let, to like let us, everyone know that, listen, we, we have to change how we've been working. It doesn't work. You hit a wall after a certain point, and that's what we've been doing, kind of cross-pollinating people at the enterprise and 
people begin to form new teams and new organizations at the enterprise. So that's what we've been doing. Yeah, you brought up some good points because uh, one of the things I, I wrote in my dissertation was looking at, I created an acronym because everyone loves acronyms, but STOP. So the sociocultural, the technological or technical, organizational, and the policy or politics barriers. And hopefully if we deal with those barriers, we can really do some serious innovation. But thank you for pointing out the, the various barriers that we need to look into. Um, Rory, what are your thoughts on what strategies do you employ to encourage internal and external? Yeah, uh, first of all, Justin spot on with a lot of things, but I did find it a little funny that the NASA guy doesn't want to work in a vacuum. Uh, isn't that kind of one of your big uh, spaces? But no, not no. that vacuum. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Uh, um, but yeah, um, I think to, to help uh, promote open source uh, within our agencies, um, you have to be that pushy salesman. Um, the, you, there's, that, that rep doesn't exist, right? And so you have to kind of take that on yourself, um, but also collaborate with others who have that same passion and, and interest um, within your agency and outside your agency. Um, developing use cases and user stories and success stories and prove that this has happened before. Um, there's nothing better at USAID where I work than saying, this has already been done. This, this other program has already used it. It's been successful. Um, so organizations like the government working group um, that Maggie mentioned at the first panel, um, their government working group um, has been really helpful with that, just connecting with others who've had those success stories and how they've done things. Um, but it is a big challenge, right? Um, I remember a colleague of mine had to write back in the day um, the whatever form it's called to, comply, to have QGIS comply with the American with Disabilities Act. There's no one doing that. So trying to find um, resources and solutions to solve those kind of really technical problems um, is really important. Um, and so uh, being that pushy salesman, uh, collaborating, um, and um, yeah, just finding those who are on the same page. You know, you bring up a good point because there's, there's more and more um, DEIA uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility initiatives. And I wonder to what extent some of these software uh, programs actually consider different pieces of that uh, with the various kinds of disabilities that are out there. So having it open source maybe enables a little bit more of that possibility. I'm, I'm kind of curious. I don't know how much of uh, these software do. I did want to, you know, even though, because um, we still have a little bit of time, I wanted to ask both of you, since I know you're at NGA, and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which, which is, tends to be on the intelligence community side and a little bit more internal among some things. So are there certain strategies that you guys employ in engaging with not only internal as well as external? Have there been challenges or um, tips and tricks that you've noticed in engaging with internal and external teams on open source? Uh, so I can comment a little. Um, we have been able to really encourage open source utilization when working with universities. So we have a lot of academic grants or uh, participation in broader DOD programs where we're working you know, for a, a long period of time with college students on a real world problem. And so you know, they of course use open source software which really encourages us to kind of be able to contribute back uh, to really have a full collaboration with these teams because uh, these, these students are incredibly creative and they really are able to push the boundaries and think outside the box. And you know, we, as NGA, get a lot out of these collaborations as much as they do. 
As far as uh, I mentioned that I've been in the, the open source intelligence space, and there's, of course, cross-pollination between, you know, kind of the flatness and transparency um, with, with open source software. But one of the things that was helpful uh, to get people to not be afraid to uh, put software into GitHub came from actually the intelligence side of the house with very practical rules. Uh, I ran an effort five years before COVID, 100% unclassified telework effort uh, that did nothing classified. It was 100% unclassified everything. And one of the challenges that we had historically, there had been jokes about it in the open source Intel space for a long time, is the agency's interest in X is classified. And the X could have been anything. So I said, well, that's just, that's just not true, and everyone knew it wasn't true. So, but how do you come up with practical rules that people remember? People do not remember regulations. They remember stories. And there was two questions that came out of this effort called the Pathfinder that helps with, even on the open source software side. And if you look into the Terraline application that I mentioned earlier, you will see this philosophy practiced to ask these two questions on whether it's safe or not. Does the group under study actively hide their behavior? Would they change it knowing that we're watching? And if the answer is no and no, you have a very safe question. So on the open source software side, when you want to contribute back or, con or just put the repository out there, you have to ask, what is fundamentally are we protecting here? And the answer isn't everything because I work at NGA. You have to run it through a more calculus. Is there patent level th patentable level things that I, that I should hold to my vest? Or, or is there truly a security thing that can be used to game the system in a real way? And those rules, and I'll get to the memo part that I wanted to talk about, of how that, that from the Intel side of the house informs safety to go out in a coding way. And it's, it's all about what to protect and not to protect, and kind of the vanillaization of knowledge workers across the board, and to use that in a very practical, meaningful way. So I know you kind of just started talking about it. So, you know, one of the questions we had talked about was why does contributing back to the open source communities help? And how can you do it effectively? So I know, um, and I, I, I had to do it as um, actually print out the memo. Sorry, my phone was falling. But I wanted to print out this memo that I think you are, it, it is amazing. So it, it's, I, I will just name it software development and open source software from the DOD. But wanted to have you explain a little bit more of why, outside of the open source software and us using this and, and pushing our, our um, government software programs where 20% of our programs should be open source based on the federal um, code policy, why is contributing very important as well? Yeah, so that memo, the, the story back to the, the GitHub part, in 2013-14, it was how do we open source repositories within that brand so people can see all of the, the stuff that was under one brand account. Prior, you had NSA donating things to the, you know, uh, certain software foundations. You had repositories that were hanging out there named after the repository, but the breakthrough there was under one brand, right? So that did well. And there's, there's great software that's there. Our people that are the lead developers, Amanda has a repository there. She's interacting, taking the pull requests, and doing the interactive thing. The bigger question was, okay, cool. I feel safe in this branded NGA GitHub space. How do I go to contribute to repositories outside of that without talking to lawyers, talking to public affairs, and kind of that real gatekeeper mentality that people are afraid of? So this memo was drafted internal to the agency to say, again, these very practical questions. What are you protecting? Is it kind of 
okay, yeah, that makes sense in 2022 that any organization would be using this kind of software. It's not that big of a deal. The memo basically said, you don't need to go to public affairs. You don't necessarily have to contact an attorney. Inform your supervisor, use common sense, and if it makes sense, go use your real name and ask the community to contribute back. And that was done. So when this DOD heard about this, they were working on this big policy memo from the entire DOD. They took that memo from NGA, and now it is available for all DOD employees. So you are not going to get in trouble by going out and interacting in a mission way, by using common sense and interacting with repositories. Now, this is very DOD, but I do think of a benefit even outside the DOD or IC culture I think that that gatekeeper public affairs mentality exists at a lot of federal agencies. So if you take a look at this memo on the contri contributing back part, you can say, hey, look, DOD has done this. Why can't we do this as well? So it's not just an esoteric DOD thing. And that was a, that was a big victory um, to do that. And it, it, it's a memo, and it has a seal and a signature, and it looks kind of, you know, very DC, like this very cool building. Um, but it, 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 there's... It's one of those hidden things that has so much empowerment that, you, that can not come across in a PDF file, but it, it was a big deal, and it's kind of a hidden gem, if you will. And I probably will update the site with some of these resources, because I think it's really great. But Amanda, do you have any thoughts on why contributing matters? Why is it so important for open source? Sure. So, you know, realizing contributing back is sometimes not possible. I think it's kind of our responsibility to do it when we can. Uh, and so I've actually, you know, I have a repository on Chris's, uh, on Chris's GitLab page. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I did was, you know, I took the idea of the original SpaceNet metric, right, which was a metric to evaluate automatic feature extraction data. But in my reality, I don't have the luxury of, you know, having a complete reference data set every time because if I was going to, if I had that, I wouldn't be paying for automatic feature extraction. So I took that data, I took that concept, and I scaled it, I made it work. I took the same concepts and I just kind of changed the ideas to make it work for what we do have. And I was able to share that back to the community. And it really increases transparency on, you know, so that the community can then see what is important to NGA, how do we look at maps, how do we grade maps, uh, so that way, you know, we can start having a discussion on, you know, is everything right? Is everything wrong? Uh, and how can we do it better? And so I think that there's been a lot of, a lot of benefit. And that was a time where, you know, because of Chris's work, it was significantly more easy for me to do that and start those conversations. So I don't know if Justin or Rory wants to point out anything further about building communities, but yeah, go ahead. Just kind of responding to um, some of the things that NGA folks said, um, it's really awesome to see that you aren't working in that vacuum and, and leveraging um, documents and policies that are already out there from other agencies and um, learning from them and stuff. I think that doesn't happen enough in the federal government, um, nearly enough. Um, and it's really interesting to hear about NGA's approach to this because, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys are kind of the service organization to the rest of the intelligence community and broader federal government where you provide uh, this geospatial analysis and lens to other folks. And so um, I would imagine open source would play a, a huge role in helping facilitate those connections um, a lot easier with all our siloed systems and proprietary software and different servers and yada, 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 um, you know, if things are operated in an open kind of compatible way, um, it would just make your guys' job a lot easier as well. 
And that's probably an argument you can easily make to your yes. Um, supervisors. Yes, and then there is on the, you know, everyone knows the open source thing. It doesn't mean, you know, free beer. Uh, there's a, there's a, a labor part that's very, very important. So you have a repository and you'll go, okay, so what language do I have to code in? You know, what skills do I need? Particularly as the, the kind of the debate in open source software and machine learning and artificial intelligence. Okay, there's the repository. There's no way you can replicate it. So just because it's open source doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna be able to replicate it uh, if there's an incredible compute resources. But there's the developer side and that tends to be the technical audience. But it just helps, again, to that cultural piece of just the, the kind of the less spooky type of assumptions that really help with kind of the GitHub push to put it with in a public way. And you know, with the policy, there was something that recently from the crowdsourcing and science side, uh, there was a crowdsourcing and science act and we've got this policy. However, uh, these activities have been going on for a long time in some federal agencies. There, there weren't necessarily a need for other, there are existing authorities that allowed us to do that, but um, with these kinds of policies, do you feel like it has been really helpful? I know in the federal government it can be a challenge if you don't have something from the top down that's saying it's okay, uh, when there are folks that say, is it okay? Uh, then it, it creates a challenge. And so have you found, um, this has been out for about a year, mm -hmm. have you found that it's um, been really helpful in it, it, changing, cultural change is a challenge sometimes. And so I wondered if you've noticed any change. So I'll use an anecdote from 40 minutes ago. I was talking to a man I was gonna talk about and I told her about this memo. She's like, we can go do that? <laughs> so it, it's just, it's, not, it's kind of a sleepy thing that's not known. Right, and there are there are some folks that you know. Hey, is it a binding memo? It's like okay, let, let's. You're not going to get in trouble. <laughs> it, 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 this is it's just clear. This is not going. You're not going to get in trouble to do it, and that's that's the that's the that's been the challenge, right? Even if you have the citation. Well, okay, but what does my boss think? So there's, there's, there's these different layers that need to fall into place. But, you know, it definitely helps by having, you know, the, the big overarching, um, you know, document for sure. Um, but again, these things have been going on and building up for a while, uh, particularly with the commercialization of um, NG's, what historically was, of the classified space. So the, 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 the commercialization of space and then the issue, and then and of course what's happening on the ground as well, it is just kind of ratcheted down the level of, you know, kind of behind the firewall mentality. So it, it, there's been a lot of progress. Um, in a good kind of measure is if you had someone that joined the organization in 1984, would they recognize the organization coming in in 2022? And I think in many pockets, they would be very surprised on the level of things that are totally different than when, you know, that's a good assumptions check, kind of like the time machine model to help how much things have changed. Um, still more to go, but I like to use the, I would do, I think that people would be, wow, I didn't know I can do all this, and didn't have to go ask permission for it. Absolutely. Now, earlier you were kind of speaking of space, so I just want to go to you, Justin, <laughs> from the NASA side. Uh, have you found, I don't know if you're using more open source software versus contributing as well, and given that you're not in the intelligence community side with the NASA, um, from a NASA agency standpoint, do you find there's been issues, or have you ever thought about contributing, contributing back to the open source software community? Is there efforts to do that even within NASA? Oh, absolutely. So uh, we tend to leverage open source software to build applications that serve our end user community, right? And so these applications, we then open source, 
right? And so one thing, uh, adoption is one thing of open source software, but then committing back to is a completely different thing, right? And each one of these has their own different challenges. When it comes to committing, who's, who has resources, right? Um, sometimes it's training, right? We have this new cool widget, this new cool tool, but we may have to train your organization how to use it. Do we have resources for that? Does your organization have resources for that? Okay, if you actually use our, our application, are you just going to uh, do a pull request and branch off from the main uh, base to create your own? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of layers to open source software and uh, um, contributions. Um, so internally, what we try to do within our organization is we, like I said, we have that cross, uh, that, that cross federated, that, that federated team and what we try to do there is we have the developers at, this, at the organization working together and if their data center needs something, they, they, they have a different need, then that developer is more aware of what's going on with the enterprise and before they build something, hey, you're going to use this open source software. You're going to contribute back to this instead of building your own. Now, when it comes to other organizations, for instance, we've partnered with NOAA, we have an MOU, and they are aware of all the things that we're doing. They say, hey, we like your common metadata repository. Can we use it? Like, yeah, we had to train you. And so we have to get that per permission. We have to go to our managers and say, hey, we think it's a good uh, value uh, proposition to share this, but also train them how to actually use this, right? And then there's this other thing that kind of comes along with it, especially open source software. There's a lot of... Um, uh, uh, is it documented well, right? When it's internal, like you, you, your developers know, like they know they're further, further away from it because they've been working for it, with, with it for so long. Is it well documented? Is it well tested? Is it well supported? These things are very key, especially when you're sharing things externally, right? To keep people um, from, from not only just being interested, but using it and using it long term to the point where they want to commit back to it, right? So those are all the things that we're kind of uh, the challenges that we're kind of tackling at this space, we still have a long ways to go, but I think we've come a long ways in uh, really promoting open source software, um, getting, uh, getting out into the community, what we do and learning from other people. And if we can't collaborate, meaning that we can't, uh, you know, two or different organizations uh, have two different systems, it doesn't really work, the applications don't really work or transfer well, well, how about this? How can we use open standards? How can we have our systems be interoperable? How about that? So we collaborate with OGC, we, we go to AGU and all these other conferences, talk to the users themselves, what do you need? You know, we, we like to, to geek out on all the technical stuff for data systems, but what do you need? Because if we're building something that you don't want to use, then it doesn't really matter anyways, does it? And so all those things that we're looking from, we're looking at this open source software from so many different angles and slowly making progress as time goes on. Yeah, thank you. That's a really good point. So we'll have maybe one last major question for all of you. I'll start with Rory. Um, does the use of open source software support other agency initiatives? So it's, you know, open source comes up a lot in relation to maybe open data or other collaboration policies, more open, you know, open government has been a major push for quite a few years or a decade now. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, so at USAID, um, I think one way to look at it is our kind of core agency systems are largely proprietary. And uh, 
means there's a lot of opportunity, I think, in the future to try to, to try to move into some more open source tools. Um, where we've really made a lot of progress with is in our programming, when we're using and developing tools uh, in, our, in our projects. Um, so, you know, we work in education, we work in uh, conflict prevention, uh, food security, um, healthcare, global health, things like that. And so those projects themselves, they're using um, amazing tools um, across the board and developing and contributing back to those tools. Um, it's hard to collect all the stories that have been, been done. Um, I find new ones every day. Um, but um, that's where the real opportunity lies within our agency. And so it's, it's, it's supporting that as, as best we can. Um, and also through uh, open data as well um, and making sure that the data we collect for our programming is made available to um, our implementing partners, um, as well as our development and humanitarian response partners as well. Yeah, I definitely think there's been a lot of efforts that cross over based on some common um, policies in the open, the open whatever space, open blank. So I don't know, from the NASA side, Justin, what have you thought of um, in terms of other initiatives that have been supported? So right now, at, uh, across the um, Science Mission Directorate, we have something called the Science Policy Directive 41, this SPD 41. And that's essentially saying that, you know, NASA funds a lot of research. Well, if you are a NASA-funded researcher, then the expectation is that the data will be open, the software will be open, and the results of the science will be open as soon as possible, right? So open as possible, closed as necessary. And so um, we have a new initiative starting next year called Transform to Open Science that we're really marketing and getting out there. That's essentially to increase the awareness of open science and um, really uh, promote the use of open science and then broaden the participation to historically underrepresented communities, getting back to the DEIA initiatives, right? And so, um, again, open data, open science, and really building that community and, and sharing those results as soon as possible. Because as we know in the academic space, I, you know, we tend to kind of hoard things together because of, you know, a lot of things are associated with your secret sauce, right? And so we are trying to really to change that dynamic a little bit, change that narrative to the point where we're incentivizing you via funds to open this stuff up as soon as possible. I'm really glad you brought that up because you know there was a recent OSTP, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy memo that was put out um, just August 2022, so very recently on ensuring free, immediate, and equitable access to federally funded research. So the, there's definitely been a big push for open science. There's a subcommittee for open science now. So very good point. That is definitely one of the major themes. Roy, you feel like you want to say something, so go ahead. Yeah, um, so I don't think we have as a, you know, a same level of like policy support for this, but um, one of the kind of mantras at USAID is do no harm. Um, so in our uh, international development work and our humanitarian response, that's baked into all of our programming. And it might take a little bit of ed education for, uh, you know, contracting officers and project managers who aren't, who don't have a, a technology background, but um, open source is a big part of that. Um, you know, USAID programs can last, you know, a couple of years and then the funding and the activities will dry up. And so if you leave behind a proprietary database that no one can pay for, that data is good as dead. Um, and so um, one thing that we try to do is to bake uh, kind of these open platforms um, 
just because they'll be living long after where our programs have ended, and because of the, what we've talked about earlier, that sense of community, where they can go out and get support uh, readily available from that community around those different um, tools. So I don't know if um, Chris or Amanda, you have any other thoughts based on what uh, the other folks have shared in terms of, you know, how, how does this maybe, how does open source relate to other agency initiatives or policies that you want to comment before I give a final question for you all? I can just give a quick plug. Um, Doug wasn't able to make it earlier, but GNOME is an NSG open mapping enclave, which is something NGA developed. Uh, and it's, you know, it's OSM schema data where you know anyone in the entire NSG can contribute or use the data for their missions, and so I think that's a really uh, that's a really positive initiative that's really helped us you know contribute to other federal agencies' missions. You mentioned open government, and I you know and you used the ten years was was the figure, and I was just thinking about the old you know the Gov 2.0 days that kind of dovetailed with the the Web 2.0 days, and it's been it's been going on for a while. Two things, and again, I've, I've been in this space for a while, and two kind of counterintuitive things that I've seen that I wanted to share um, from these type of open communities. One on the crowdsourcing side. So I've done prize competitions. Uh, we gave uh, somebody in Iowa $10,000 for solving a technical problem. But what I have seen sometimes with some of these crowdsourcing efforts is kind of a Hail Marys, a stump the chump, something that the organization really can't do, so they throw it to the outside expecting a miracle. You can't really put out what you can't reasonably do. So when you're crafting one of these things, it can't be a stump the chump activity or, or a Hail Mary. It's gotta be reasonable to, when you're doing these crowdsourcing things. Because I've seen some of the requirements when people are writing them, and it's like, can you fly to Neptune? I mean, it's like, <laughs> if you can't do it, don't ask somebody else on the outside to do it for you. No, Justin, can we fly to Neptune? <laughs> we actually can fly to Neptune. No, not. <laughs> I meant more I like a Superman know. way. Um, no, but the the other one that was kind of the counterintuitive, and I was a firm believer in this, and it's been kind of the opposite with the open data movement. I remember kind of consulting and working on the data.gov stuff when there was the idea that we were going to put this big repository of all this open data. And it was kind of a snooze fest in the sense that it attracts power users, people that can write code and know what an API is and can code against it. And I was kind of looking at you know, the report, the, the unstructured text report. That's going to go away. People are just going to consume data and visualizations and all this stuff. That's not happened. It's gone in the opposite direction. So if you look at trends in data journalism, the same assumptions were made. If you, or there's going to be these D3 libraries that are going to replace the newspaper article. There's no evidence to suggest that that's being traded off in any way, right? So you have, there's the power user, which is important, but that shouldn't, they're not enough to make a community. So if you look at Terraline, the design of it, it leads with unstructured text. And at the bottom, there's these data sources that are the structured data. And my time with data.gov, kind of consulting with it, is I did rip off kind of the color codes that data.gov had to tell you what type of data type it was, that was really, really cool. So two things on the open government that I've seen that's kind of counterintuitive from my assumptions in 2009 coming into that Gov 2.0 community. So as maybe a final question, because I know Eddie's going to really push me off stage very soon, so he can speak, um, <laughs> is uh, I wanted to ask you all, and there's maybe a twist I, I was thinking of asking, so what is a open source software 
that you really want people to know about or that's your go-to um, and or that you put on code.gov because that is something that we all could do in the federal government that we're encouraged to do, at least 20% of our agency's policy or software. So um, I'll start with you, Rory. Ooh, okay. My original answer is going to be QGIS, but everyone knows that these days. Um, I think uh, one of the lightning talks I saw earlier, um, in the code example, they used um, a Postgres um, SQL, um, and they used OSM2 psql, which is an awesome little extension to just get OSM data into a database. Um, and the queries are a lot more straightforward than like overpass and stuff like that. Um, and just, I think SQL's a great way if you don't code to get into um, starting to code a little bit. GDAL is very popular in, in our community, and what we do is we wrap it around, we use our APIs to wrap it to kind of uh, integrate with our systems. We have some more uh, homebrew applications, uh, open source software applications, such as the Common Metadata Repository, meaning that this is what enables a scientist to search all our data holdings, right? The metadata, the metadata repository. Then we have something called um, Cumulus, which is our cloud-based ingest and archive system. Um, when they were on premises, everybody had their own ingest archive distribution system. Now it's once Cumulus, that's open source. We have a, a framework called Harmony. That is our, our framework for services. Thinking back to on-premises, every data center had their own flavor of services, subsetting, reprojection, mosaicing services. Now we just have one platform called Harmony. All these things are open source. Hey, you know, come and talk to me afterwards if you want to learn more. I want to say Wagtail. Yeah, that's uh, you know it's a content management open source. It's Python based, and and that's what we use as the kind of the back to my point of the if you if you go to www.terraline.mil, that's what it's built in. That's part of the stack. Is that what you'll see is most people want two paragraphs and a pretty picture. That's what the vast majority of people will take. Again, you need the power users, but it, the elegance of the software, the documentation is good. The community is pretty strong. Um, so it, it's been really, really helpful of, of riffing on um, from a content management perspective, uh, from behind the firewall, from an authorization and authoring perspective, and then the outputs have been, have been elegant. Uh, so I use probably not the same repo twice. So my go-tos are relatively boring with things like GeoPandas, Scikit-Learn, Shapely. Uh, those are my favorites. I've got a fan in the background. <laughs> um, so, um, but lots of things have been fun. Uh, things like Pixit Picks for GANs or um, sort of like GAN flavored decision trees have been very interesting lately. So I would say uh, something that I've been using recently is Teria.js. So how many of you have heard of Teria.js? It's a geospatial catalog. So that's been fun to use. Um, what I did want to do in my last couple minutes is, uh, and I know I didn't really introduce this in the beginning, but you'll kind of notice that there's uh, not six of us up here. There, we have one missing person. So Nate uh, France, he uh, would have loved to have been here, but he unfortunately got into a car accident uh, not too long ago and, and suffered concussions. So he was not able to be here. 
but I really wanted to end uh, our panel with a promo video of TAC.gov, which is a system that uh, he's been strongly supporting, and I think it just might be a good way um, to end our session, and what I think he would say is, hey, come and use my open source software that we've helped develop. So TAC being, and this is maybe the cue to the folks if they are still able to play the video. If not, that's okay, but we'll just post it online. Um, let's see if we get some good high audio on this. Are you able to turn it up? Perfect. Tactical Assault Kit has been described as a game changer. As it's known outside of the DoD, the Team Awareness Kit is a movement that has seen the addition of 15 DoD programs and a growing base of over 250,000 users spanning the U.S. military, federal, state, and local government organizations, as well as U.S. partner nations. The technology and open source collaboration powering TAC permits real-time visibility into mission status, coordination of shared resources, and a reduction of fratricide incidents, all while operating on an open source platform to improve integration across civil use, government, and military users. Maintained by the team of dedicated professionals at the U.S. Army Combat Capabilities Development Command, C5ISR, in the TAC Product Center, TAC improves situational awareness across both small and large-scale command and control operations. The TAC solution is truly a fundamental shift from cumbersome radio-based operations. Where observer azimuths, paper maps, and signal mirrors can delay reaction times, improved communication and coordination are critical to saving lives. When seconds are the difference between life and death, TAC is your go-to platform. Come join the movement and see what TAC can do for your organization. Join the 250,000 members, 15-plus DOD programs, and countless first responders, police, and emergency personnel that have improved mission outcomes, reduced cost, and improved operational effectiveness by tapping into the open-source collaborative solution that is TAC. Learn about TAC from the experts in the field. Join the conversation about latest developments and best practices that will help you advance your organization to a well-connected, situationally aware, cost-effective, and mission-focused unit. So if you uh, didn't hear it, it was tactical assault kit for the military side or team awareness kit on the civilian side. So, but thank you so much. I keep um, a team awareness. <laughs> I, I'm hoping to maybe tap into that and do more of the metaverse open source version of it because you could tell there was some virtual reality. So thank you so much. Thank you, panelists. And I want to welcome...